Hey everyone, very informative episode today with Sean Impey talking about the importance of having an investor-focused mortgage broker. We also touched on RRSP mortgages and private lending. Enjoy. Hey, Sean, welcome to the REI Dad podcast. Hey, Wayne, thanks for having me. A pleasure to be here. So you've been investing in real estate for some time, haven't you? I have, about 20 years. Um, Done some single families, some condos, duplexes, and multifamily over the years. And right now, sitting at about 62 doors in various types of real estate. That's so awesome. And from what I understand, I think you explained is uh, you retired from your career a few years back and then decided it wasn't for you? Yeah, I was in the construction business for many, many years, worked a lot at Fort McMurray up at the oil sands or for oil companies in Calgary, been out in Kitimat, Regina, various places. And December 16, I decided I didn't want to do that anymore. So sat around the house for a month or two and that was boring as hell. So <laughs> decided to do something. So I thought mortgage broker would be a good, good avenue to pursue since, uh, you know, I've been through all the, the mortgage trials and tribulations that you get as an investor. Mm-hmm. And I may, I focus more on investors and some of the issues they, they focus or they face. And obviously, you know, it's, it's a lot more passive. You can do as much work or as little as work as you want, right? Well, that's, that's a nice thing about it. If I want to take a couple of weeks off and go down to a place in Mexico and sit on the beach and do nothing, I can do that or take my computer with me and I can work from the deck and watch the ocean bang on the shore and, and do yeah. mortgages. Um, well, you've got a ton of experiences and, and lots of different strategies um, and aspects of investing. So um, I could go in lots of different directions, but I think what I wanted to talk to you today, obviously, is, is about your expertise and, and that's going to be, you know, lending. And, uh, and why don't we just start off with that? I mean, you know, as a, let's say a new investor, um, what would you say, why is it so important to make sure that you have a, a broker who's, who's investor focused? Well, Investor mortgages aren't easy sometimes, especially with, uh, you know, the A banks or the, the best rates, you know, the, the Scotias and TDs that we talk about as the big, the big five or big six banks out there because they're, they're pretty strict on what they, what they want to approve. And if you get a few rental properties, depending on who you go with, it can, be, it can be challenging to keep getting those next mortgages and qualifying for on on income basis can offset your rent against against your properties and uh, debt servicing that not all banks will make that a wash and you'll slowly eat into your qualification room uh, that's if you have a a day job basically a salaried income right tougher if you're self-employed as a say a full-time real estate investor then it really really becomes tough to get mortgages in your name so what kind of roadblocks does it does it as a new investor or, you know, maybe um, an investor has been doing it a few years, like what kind of roadblocks do they run into with mortgages? Um, what, I, what I find is they don't really understand all the, the rules that the banks have in place in their sandbox, so to speak. So 
always the first person you should be talking to is your mortgage broker to find out how are you going to finance this property or how are you going to finance the next property? And probably even more important, if you're going to buy something and do what's called the burst strategy where you buy, renovate, uh, rent it out, refinance it, what's that refinance look like? So if you bought it with expensive money to renovate and drive the value up, it comes time to go to an A lender to get a mortgage and you don't have the right, um, qualifications you're not going to get that a mortgage now you're got a project that's could be a flip that didn't work or something you're going to buy and hold and now you've got a 10 percent mortgage on it with private money and you can't get that a mortgage or even a b mortgage because of your income or other reasons and then that deal obviously doesn't make sense anymore because <laughs> you're losing too much money on high interest to you know um, but it doesn't so i always engineer things backwards so Someone comes to me and say, hey, I want to buy this property, fix it up and keep it as a, a suited rental or something, which is you know, a common strategy in Edmonton these days. And say, okay, well, let's, let's go look at the exit strategy of the refinance. Are you going to be able to qualify? Uh, will you be able to get a mortgage within a couple of months of buying it? Some, some banks have a one-year hiatus on, on refinancing if you buy it private or with cash or whatever method you buy it, if you put the title in your name, sometimes they want a year to pass before they'll do that. Uh, refinance mm. if you qualify. Uh, not all banks are like that. Uh, some will some will finance earlier. Some will not finance out of a private mortgage. So as you, the more complicated you get, uh, the field of potential lenders decreases. So mm -hmm. sometimes it comes down to one or two lenders and they may not be the ones you see advertised with the hot rates and but it's a matter of can I get a mortgage versus I want the best rate that's available on the market. And not just rates too, a lot of different banks, even some of the big ones, they got different kind of perks and stuff to come with it too, little features that they have, right? They have features and they have, uh, call them an anti-feature sometimes too. So <laughs> I gotta be very careful what your strategy is that some of the big banks have pretty high payout penalties. So if you know what your strategy is, if you plan on refinancing and going to a, you, know, you get a loan through a big bank and if you put a fixed rate on it and something changes and you go to sell that property and have to pay out your mortgage, you could be looking at, you know, 10 or $15,000 in a penalty. So, mm. or you could go to a variable rate, pay a three month penalty and you know, you have to, Weigh the options of fixed versus variable as far as where rates are going up or down. That's a pretty uh, common question you get in the different groups that we're parts of is, is uh, you know, should I go fixed or should I go variable? And what are the, the differences between them? And I mean, in most cases, uh, fixed is if you're going to stick with the long term, you might as well lock in the price in most cases, right? And then variable, you, it's, it's, it's open, right? You have the flexibility of, of selling and not having those big penalties. Yeah, so on a fixed rate, certainly you don't. It doesn't change for if you lock it in for five years. It doesn't change. So if you've got a property that you, you know, you say, "Geez, if my mortgage payment went up a hundred bucks, it wouldn't be as good for me." But it works at fixed rate. You may want to lock it in for five years and and think that nothing's going to change or happen for five years. So you can lock it in. Variable gives you flexibility to sell it or something goes sideways on your property with a smaller penalty. Right now, variable and fixed are not a whole lot different. It's a little bit cheaper to get variable, but not much. So if uh, 
Bank of Canada changes their mind after COVID is all over and they start raising the rate, one bump in the interest rate will put you up about where your fixed rate was and the other bumps put you, put you behind, the, behind where you'd be. So mm-hmm. it's a guessing game. And I always tell everybody, if I, could, if I knew where interest rates were going, I wouldn't be doing this for a living. I'd be, doing something <laughs> I'd be hedging, right. hedging something to make money. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I always, I was trying to add as much value as possible because I remember early on when I was learning about real estate investing, you know, you'd listen to a podcast or you listen to a video and there'd just be that one thing you'd be like, that would just kind of, that would just pop. And that, that one thing is stuck with you, that nugget. So I, I, if you don't mind explaining the difference is between the, the mortgage cancellation penalties, because everybody just assumes it's okay. I, it'll just be three months of interest. No big deal. It'll be a 1500 bucks mm, until they, well, no, they get that. No, that's that's not right. On a variable, and variable is uh, it's a five-year closed mortgage, so mm-hmm. um, it's not open. Open means you can pay it off any time without penalty. So mm-hmm. variable or adjustable mortgage, people get those confused. So just to side sidetrack for a second, an adjustable rate mortgage means your payment changes when the interest rate changes. Mm-hmm. So the amortization never changes. So if you had, if you started off at 3% and your payment was a thousand bucks, if the mortgage rate went up to three and a half, well, you'd be paying maybe a thousand and fifty or something a month. Mm-hmm. But the amortization would never change. A variable rate mortgage means that the payment never changes. So your thousand dollar payment stays the same. However, if interest rates go up, more of the payment goes towards interest and less towards principal. So the amortization changes. So there's a, they all get branded as variable or VRMs. In reality, most of the banks offer what's called an adjustable rate mortgage. So, and those, those penalties are three months interest, which is basically the rate you're paying times the balance when you pay it out divided by four to get three months out of 12. Right. So at at today's rates, um, it's less than 1%. Okay. So take and so how three percent? Yeah. How does the um, the penalties get calculated? Uh, let's say so for like an interest rate differential. Interest rate differential is there's a different calculation for just about every lender out there. So the big banks work off uh, what they call a posted rate and a, a discount that they offer you up front, and it can get very expensive and. Uh, if I could tell you exactly how every bank figures them out, it's it's a challenge. So there's a, I got calculators I can basically punch in the lender and you have to know the discount and everything else. But right. the big banks, probably about 4% of the balance is a good number to use as what your penalty would be. So it's, um, they, they figure out a differential, hence the word differential, and they multiply it by the number of months left based on how long your term is left Take, they take the interest rate that's closest to that and punch it in their calculator and shock the hell out of you when they tell you how much you have to pay to get out of it. So, yeah. When, when people are... line, yeah, let me just digress a little bit. So the big bank lenders are, we call them A lenders, Scotia, TD, CIBC, RBC, BMO, National Bank. That's the big six lenders. So there's also another big group of lenders that are called monoline lenders. So all they do is mortgages. And that would be your ones that are broker accessible, like MCAP, 
RMG, CMLS, Blueprint, there's tons of Home Trust, First National, tons of them out there. There's 28 banks in Canada last count, 28 or 30 maybe banks. Schedule one chartered banks operate on the same rules as Scotia and TD and all these other guys. So I've actually had people say, geez, I'm a little nervous borrowing money from a model. I, I never heard of them. And I said, well, you're not lending it, you're borrowing it. So what, why, why are you worried about? Yeah, exactly. If they give you, if they give you the best, uh, best type of mortgage that suits your position, why would you not take your money? Mm -hmm. so. For sure. So obviously there's, there's the two big uh, kinds of lending that you can do. And, and, you know, when it comes to investors and doing say flipping or, you know, doing a project where you need short-term funds, you know, there's private money as well. And then there's also like RRSP lending, right? Yeah. So there's, there's various ways to do it. So if, if you're honest, like most, most people are, if you tell a bank, you're going to flip a property, I'm talking about a TD or something. So she said, I'm going to flip this property and, and pay it out in six months. I say, we're not interested in that business. We want long-term solid clients who are going to pay us, pay us over time. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, you might be able to get an open mortgage from them, but it's going to be like 7%. So if you're if you're honest with them, they won't lend you on the flip. They'll right. lend you on rentals, like the Burr strategy. They'll lend you on those, but on flips they won't. So, you, or you don't qualify, and so because of the property maybe isn't that good. So you, you can go to secondary lenders. Um, it's what we call B lenders out there. B lenders are more expensive than A lenders by maybe a percent or two, depending on the on the credit score and the, the deal and there's a small fee involved. So they're the, they're, some of them will do flips. Most of the flips end up with, uh, with the private lenders, the mix, um, Fizzguards or Calvert, or uh, there's, there's many, many out there. There's probably 30 or 40 in Alberta, based in Alberta, BC that lend money on private, private money for people who don't qualify on the A and B side or for investors doing flips on their projects that need money for six months or something like that. So, so how do those people qualify you as an investor? Are they qualifying you in, in, on your income or are they qualifying on the, the actual deal? The privates, the mix and that it's generally the property. It's an equity loan. So if it's worth 300, they'll go to maybe 70% of the value. So that's $210,000. So there's $90,000 left in there. If something goes sideways and they have to come back and foreclose, they got $90,000 to collect their realtor fees and their lawyer fees and the interest owed and all the other costs. So they're pretty mm -hmm. comfortable doing something like that. So saying that, and with since COVID kicked in, some of those lenders are even cutting back from 70 to 65 and 60%. So they're being a little more ultra cautious. So they're, they're never going to lose money on a, on a file. So mm. you know, the only, the only way they'd really lose money is if a property just went totally sideways or got a bad appraisal or something like that. And yeah, so they're really being due diligence. So it's, it's a lot more as property based. I mean, they do ask the same questions. What are you doing? They want to see your credit score. If you've been bankrupt twice and you go to get a mortgage, they're probably just going to say no because they know you don't mind walking away from debt. So 
Yeah. A lot, yeah. Of, them, a lot of them have a, what's called a stated income document that you'll sign that says, hey, I make this much money and I can afford to pay this mortgage. And they might ask questions about the, the deal itself, you know, after repaired value and a few things like that. Generally, it's as long as it's a saleable property, when you get your mortgage, it's not too much problem with the, with the mix and the, and the private. So. I um I get a lot of questions about the other form of uh, private lending, which I get, do you consider it private lending, which RSP lending, yeah, and investing your RSP funds. Correct. So there's the mix that do private, and there's individuals that do, and some are some are cash lenders. You know, someone who's got half a million or a million dollars in the bank from whatever reason, sold a business or something like that, and they want to lend their money out. Mm-hmm. They do it. Uh, they, can, they do that and um, that's their business is lending out money to fund retirement or income and stuff like that. And the second way private individuals can lend their money is through what's called self-directed mortgages. So typically that's RRSP or TFSA or Lira. Those are the, the three main ones that everybody knows about. And people, people sometimes have one or all three of those. So those mortgages are all done through a, a trustee. And there's, there's three trustees that get used. Olympia Trust, that's what I use for my money. Canadian Western Trust is another popular one. And then there's another one, Community Trust, which has been the odd deal happen out here in Alberta through Community Trust. They're more, uh, more based in Ontario, but you can lend cross, cross country. So to set up an RRSP, you know, that's, the, that's the term everybody uses for Going through Olympia, either even though they could be TFSA or, or Liras, you need to open an account with Olympia, and each each type of fund needs its own account. So your TFSA needs an account, your RRSP needs an account, your Lira needs an account. So you set up that account, you transfer your funds in, either you make a contribution out of cash you got, or more often it comes from an account you got someplace else um, with a financial advisor or a bank or something like that. So you fill out some paperwork, you send it off to that uh, advisor or the bank and say, please send all my money in kind to Olympia, for instance. And in kind means that it is not cashed and repurchased. It's just moved from one institution to another. So there's no tax hit or anything like that. So Mm. the biggest challenge with some of those mortgages is the financial advisors don't like to let go. So if you've got $500,000 sitting with a, a financial advisor and he's making his trailer fees and stuff off that every year, he's not really that excited about letting it go. So there'll be lots of, lots of advisors will tell the client that they're making a wrong decision or that they really don't know what they're doing with their money. So they'll, they'll hang on to it. It can take four to six, eight weeks sometimes to get money from A to B. Really? So if you are setting up a RRSP or other self-directed mortgage, I always tell my lenders that you never commit to anything until you actually have the money sitting in Olympia Trust. Yeah. Canadian Western, wherever it is, because you can't, you can't fund a mortgage until you have the cash. So if you promise somebody a mortgage three weeks from now and they have a, you know, a firm closing date and everything on their property and, you're still fighting with your financial advisor two weeks and four days from now, 
likely that's not going to find me and someone's going to be very unhappy. So mm-hmm. I always, mm-hmm. I always insist that the money be sitting in the Olympia account. You, know, you, ne- you never know when you're going to get paid out either. So even if they got something that's maturing at a certain date until that actually matures and the, the borrower pays it out and it gets back in your Olympia account, don't, don't promise anything. So otherwise so, someone's, so- someone's going to get burned. Yeah. Yeah. So Sean, let's, let's use a, let's use a scenario or an, or an example, you know, cause maybe there's someone listening saying, Hey, I've got $150,000 in RSPs, you know, it's in the market, it's with a financial advisor, but it's getting horrible returns and I'd like to get out of the market and I want to invest it in real estate. But you know, you and I know that you're not actually investing in real estate. You're investing it into a mortgage, right? Correct. You're not, you're not, uh, you don't own a piece of that real estate. You have a, Mortgage on the property that the borrower was promised to pay you back at a certain rate. So, which is way more secure because you're not exposed to the real, you know, the volatility, not the volatility, but you know what I mean? You're not exposed to any risk in real estate and you're getting a fixed rate return, right? Well, I would say you're not exposed to risk. You're exposed to a much lower risk. Of course. Depending on your loan to value of what you go in there. So, if you go in at 50% on a first mortgage on a good solid property, odds are you're never going to lose any money on it because right. you can always sell that property at a discount, get your money back, get your costs back, your interest and everything else and, and be whole and make what you expected to make. So um, if you go in at a very high ratio mortgage, say you're a second mortgage behind uh, another private or a bank or something like that, and you're at say 90% loan to value, well, if property prices drop 10% and then there's a realtor fee and then there's a lawyer fee and on and on, well, you, you can lose money in a, in a mortgage if you're not doing your due diligence on exactly what's happened. So I, I typically tell clients if they're going to go high ratio on a really high ratio on a self-directed mortgage that I lim- when I do it, I limit it to people who are you know, doing new builds or, or flips or something like that. So I can be 90 to 100% of the value on the purchase value, say 250. I might go in second position and, and land up to the 250 mark, but knowing that this property is going to be worth $400,000 when it's all done. Right. And can advance money in a, on a draw basis so that you're always keeping your equity ahead of you. And I would have to know who the obviously who the borrowers are and their track record and everything else. So typically my own funds, I lend to people that I've arranged a first mortgage for, or I know, know the track record is going to get done and they're going to make some money and I'm going to make some money. Yeah. And so I, I want clients, to, clients are going to make some money. Yes. And I want to go back to that uh, on, on, on how you broker that um, a little bit after, but you know, I just wanted to make sure that we, we kind of be a little more clear on, you know, if that person who you are lending to, say an investor, they do a flip or they do a build and something happens and they have to sell it. And like you said, you subtract all the realtor fees and everything else. And suddenly that flip, that investor's flip didn't work out. It doesn't necessarily mean that he or she who holds the mortgage, the lender is automatically um, going to lose money because what has to happen is that investor that you lended to or lent to, sorry, has to default and not, you know, um, fulfill their obligations of paying you back. Right. 
So they still have the opportunity to go and pull it from a credit card or lend a credit and make things right with you. Now, in the event that they fail on their flip and they don't have the money to send it back to you and they say, sorry, then of course you would have to go through the whole default process, right? You would. And that's why you always want to know how much skin in the game the investor has. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's very, it's very tough to lend to somebody who's, borrowing their first mortgage, borrowing their down payment and borrowing their renovation money. If things go sideways and they don't have any money of their own, so sue me, what are you gonna, what are you gonna get out of somebody who has no money, right? Right. So, you know, by by the time all the bills are paid, there may not be enough money left over to pay out the mortgagees. And the mortgage, uh, the mortgagees always have the, uh, you know, first call, so, Mortgages are always done in priority. So the first one to the post that registers a mortgage on that property is in first position. Mm-hmm. So they, they get paid first. The second mortgage that gets registered is in second position. So they get paid after the first mortgagee is done. Right. So, and if you're third and so on. Um, anybody who registered a caveat, builders, liens, that kind of stuff on a property, they, they go behind all the other registrations. So the exception to that is Revenue Canada condo associations and, and municipal taxes. They, they jump to the front of the queue. So if you don't pay your property taxes, the city of Edmonton, for instance, would go in first position and they'd be the first one to get paid before any of the mortgage mortgagees get paid. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. And same with condo associations. If you default on your condo fees and they get a, they register a caveat on title for your outstanding condo fees, they go ahead of it's just like property tax. They go ahead of all the other um, lenders. That's why you'll often see lenders will pay out condo fees if someone gets a default or a caveat, and they'll just add it on to the mortgage, or they'll go after the the borrower themselves for that money, because uh, they don't want to be in second position and have you know, lose their money. Of course, of course. Yeah. Of course. So you know say someone's got $150,000 and they made that decision. I want to invest this in, in mortgages or, or second mortgages or whatever. Um, it's not in, for someone who doesn't have experience in this realm, you know, it's not a great idea just to go out and start, you know, typing on Facebook. Hey, does anyone want to borrow <laughs> my RSP funds? Because that's, that's how you're going to walk into trouble, right? You will. You yeah. You'll, you'll find the people who want money and, and you won't, get the advice you need to protect yourself. So if you're thinking about doing that, you know, talk to a mortgage broker who's done it. You know, I've done it myself and I do it for clients. Mm-hmm. So um, we can tell you about the, how to protect yourself. One is legal representation. So I've seen this happen more than once where an investor will find somebody with RSP money and just a note here, they have to be arm's length mortgages. So you can't you can't borrow RSP money from mom or dad or brother or sister. They're not considered arm's length because of the family relationship there. So they'll find they'll find a buddy or somebody who's got the money. They'll say, let's go do a mortgage, you know, let's go down and see my lawyer and we'll get you signed up to an RSP mortgage or whatever it is, right? Well, now you got that's like using the same divorce lawyer as your wife, right? So <laughs> You'd never do that because who's, who's the lawyer working for? They're working for the, the, the borrower, right? The investor. So you want to have your own lawyer uh, draft up the mortgage documents. 
or at the very least, if they present you with a mortgage document as a borrower side, at the very least you want to you want to take it to your lawyer and have them go through it very thoroughly. So it's, it's no different. If you borrowed money from TD Bank, you wouldn't you wouldn't go and um, do your own mortgage and give it to TD Bank and say, here, here's what I want to want you to sign for borrowing your money. It just doesn't right. happen. So, so you're the bank. So if you're the bank, you draft up the documents or get them drafted up or make make darn sure that what's in there is what you want in the contract and not what the investor wants in the contract. So that's that's a trap I see people falling into. So because the investor wants to save money, he yeah. doesn't want to pay he doesn't want to pay your lawyer fees. So um, another thing in private lending, the borrower pays pays all the costs. They pay the legal fees, they pay the any broker fees, they pay uh, if title insurance is required. All those things are all paid by the borrowers. So um, the lender makes his true rate of return. So when I do my RSP mortgages, um, there's always a clause in there, the borrower pays legal. And I often add in a small lender fee because to go through Olympia or Canadian Western Trust or anything, they charge you a little bit of money for your mortgage. They charge you 100, about 150 bucks to set it up. Bit of a discharge fee and then a monthly fee and stuff. So for over the course of a year, it could be $350, $400. So depending on the amount of the mortgage and stuff, you don't want that to eat into your your rate of return. If you want to make 10% on say $50,000 that you loaned out to somebody, you want you expect to see $5,000 profit at the end of the year. Well, if you got to pay $400 or something to um, Olympia for administrating this mortgage, then you're not going to get 5,000. You're going to be like 4,600. So you're going to make 9% on your money instead of 10. So it erodes away at your income. So you can, if you, if the lender or the borrower says, I don't want to pay any fees and stuff, then I, I just jack up my rate to compensate for it. So, so you get your true rate of return. One second, I'm gonna cut this out after, but um, can you turn your volume down just a little bit? I'm hearing myself through and it's it's very distorted. It's the only way I can think, that's why I threw my headphones on just to make sure it wasn't me. Um, so you want me to reduce incoming volume, I guess? I guess what, what you hear. So maybe just on your laptop or whatever. Um, so long as you can still hear me, just turn it down a bit. Cause I, I'm, I'm coming through your speakers and then through your microphone. Yeah. You can hear okay. Me I did that. We'll see how, is that can, better? Yep. I don't hear any. Yeah. I think, I think it was just a little too loud maybe. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll go right back into it. So let's, let's flip it now as an investor, as a real estate investor, you know, in what scenarios would you be looking for RRSP funds? As an investor, typically it's for um, maybe renovations on a on a flip. So, so if someone's got uh, say they got fifty thousand dollars and they want to go do a flip. Well, fifty thousand dollars won't do you a flip, right? So, typically you buy. You know, I use some Edmonton examples. Typically, you might buy it around two fifty. And by the time you're all done, it's worth 400. And maybe you've expended 
$125,000 for everything, for your renovations, your holding costs and purchase costs and whatever else is involved in there. So, so you need $125,000, you only got 50. So um, people will want to go borrow money up front and I say, well, you put your money in for the down payment and you buy the property. So you got your skin in the game. And then we can do some advances on rentals for an RRSP mortgage, say in second position, so that might give you $25,000 up front. You go out and you get things done when you've kind of got a lot done and the property value has you know, gone up because you've done some work on it. Then we can go look at doing another draw and add on, add on the money to um, keep increasing the value of the property and it protects the, it protects the lender because the first mortgage would have been 250 minus the 50 cash leaves a 200 mortgage. So it takes a couple of draws before you even get to the hundred percent of the purchase price. And mm -hmm. then, you know, the, the flipper investor has put some time and effort and he still got his 50 K in there. Right. So, so if he sold it, if he had to sell it for the same price he bought, he's going to lose his 50k but the mortgage the mortgagees will be would be pretty safe in a situation like that so mm -hmm. um and this is this is something that i didn't really learn about until until much later into my investing um career because i didn't know this was an option i thought you always had to have a line of credit or you had to have um and not many people talk about it so um You talked about flips. Is there any other scenarios where, you know, an RRSP mortgage would make sense? Um, as for an investor side, I mean, you know, we're, we're either holding it or we're flipping it, right? Generally, so. Because you don't want to carry that high interest money for a no, long period of time. It doesn't you know, make any reason, sense. The reason people get into RRSP mortgages is they can get better returns on their money, right? So you know, they're tired of the stock market ups and downs and the RSP is worth 200 on the 1st of March and then whoops, there comes COVID. Now your RSP is worth $125,000. Mm -hmm. so, you're not going to, if you do things right, you're not going to lose money in your RSP by investing in real estate. So yeah. there's always something there. You can get something back. You might not get all the interest or everything if you have deal go sideways and stuff, but at the very least you've put your loan to value a conservative enough number at least you're going to get your money back so so just like the the rsp investor or the lender um investing or borrowing rsp funds is probably well i know personally it's very difficult trying to find someone you know asking around hey do you have rsp funds you'd like to invest here i'll help you get this into olympia trust and we'll go and it's very confusing for both parties and it's also very difficult wasting your time as an investor trying to find those people. So um, in a lot of cases, they would go to a, like just the same as the lender to a mortgage broker and say, Hey, do you have anyone, you know, that can lend RSP funds. Right. And so before we end, I thought, you know, why don't we talk about what you offer and the benefits of going through a broker for funds? Well, one, one thing a broker will do is they'll, they'll qualify and, and vet the, vet the borrower just like mm -hmm. any other, just like any other lender needs some way to help them out. Um, maybe pull a credit bureau and, and check and see what's going on now. Just a caveat on that. Um, 
Equifax is changing their policies that you can only send credit bureaus to accredited um, lenders that are basically on a, a mortgage broker platform. So don't expect, uh, if you're a private lender, don't expect a mortgage broker to be able to send you any credit bureaus here once they, they, their policy kicks in here in a month or two. So, so that'll have to be something different. It may have to be that borrowers gonna have to get their own credit bureau themselves and maybe provide it to a lenders or lenders are going to have to take the word of the mortgage broker so that's that's going to stop here fairly soon so mm -hmm. which is driving a lot of private lenders onto our platforms that we use for submitting deals uh, one's called Logics, one's called velocity and there's a couple others out there that as a mortgage broker every time i do a file i have to enter all the information into my my platform so and that's where i pull credit from so yeah so and and what is it? What are you as a broker typically charged to facilitate this, or to broker? Uh, broker broker fees on private really range depending on the on the value of the loan. So, you know, typical typical broker fees about two percent. But if it's a smaller value loan, then sometimes there's a flat rate involved. It really depends on the the amount of work and what's required. Like, if it's a really big loan, the fee can be less. So. It doesn't really take a whole lot more work to do a four hundred thousand dollar mortgage or a five hundred thousand dollar mortgage. So you know, it could be a, a little bit of a fee for a higher uh, fee reduction for a higher amount. But conversely, it takes as much work to do fifty thousand dollars as it does do four hundred. So you know, if you charge just a, a, a bare minimum, it would probably hard to cover the costs of of generating the loan there, right? So for sure, it's a little bit flexible, but you know, two percent's uh, probably an average number for brokers uh, lender fees range anywhere from half a percent up to they can be up to three percent from lenders depending on risk and who the lender is and and there's there's lenders out there who do five percent lender fees and high interest rates all the time and they get lots of clients so for whatever reason they find these people out there who who need money and they're maybe they're high ratio and stuff like that and there's other lenders who are, you know, you can get first mortgages at 60%, you can get six or 7% as privates, maybe a 1% fee or something like that, and a couple percent for the brokers. So broker fee, it, it really adds to your interest rate. You know, if you, if you take a one-year mortgage at 7% and the broker's charging you 2%, lender's charging you 1%, so over the course of 12 months, you're actually paying 10% for your money. Oh. Overall, that's your effective interest rate. One thing that um, you always have to have your broker help you analyze is the total cost of funds. So some lenders will charge you 6% and 2% fee, or they'll charge you 8% and no fee. So you think, oh, geez, I'll take the cheap interest, right? Well, if you only need the money for six months, then you're paying a higher effective interest rate because you're paying that 2% over six months. So you're really paying like 4% for that money when you annualize it. So really always, always analyze your total cost of funds. Um, another thing about private money and lending when you're doing flips and stuff like that is, you know, joint ventures is a big, big thing these days, right? For people, you know, get more, either get credit or money or something from people. So, if you have a choice between doing a joint venture with somebody 
on a flip, say, or the choice of borrowing money, analyze it from both ways. And nine times out of 10, you will find out that borrowing the money from a private lender at 12%, say, with some fees, is going to be a lot cheaper for you in the end run versus paying your joint venture partner 50%. Of the profits, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and if it's if it doesn't work out that the joint or that the private money is cheaper, then you better take a hard look at your deal because you probably don't have enough profit in it to begin with. Right. The risk is if you've got hard money and things go sideways, you're stuck. Whereas yes. your joint venture, you're paying half the profits. If things go sideways, there's no profit for anybody, right? Mm -hmm. so you don't want to get caught on hanging on to private mortgages for stuff you can't sell. So there's there's pros and cons, but you know, the experienced guys tend to not like joint ventures and that's why they'll they'll borrow money privately to, to get their deals done and all the money in their pocket instead of a, a partner's pocket. So for sure. The one last thing I want to touch on before we uh, we finish up is, you know, you'd mentioned 12% for lending, you know, let's say, again, I'm going to go back to the, the hypothetical person who's listening that wants to invest RSP funds. Um, what's the standard or what's the range to be expected for interest uh, that they charge? So on first mortgages, um, lower the loan to value, lower the interest rate, less risk, right? It's all risk-based. Right. So there's some out there that the six or seven percent range for first mortgages. This I'm talking about investor properties, not owner occupied, because they're a little cheaper even with privates. You can get them a little cheaper than that. Mm -hmm. and That's yearly. They correct. range up to about ten to twelve for first mortgages, depending on again risk, location, property type, marketability. You know, they they build that in. Um, so I would say six to twelve for first mortgages. Second mortgages I've seen some crazy second mortgage rates at low rates that people have got through RSP lenders who are novices or didn't talk to anybody and they're lending it out like six, seven, eight percent for second mortgages through RSP. But I don't do less than 12 for seconds, my own money, and usually about 15%. Typically, they're smaller loan amounts too. So if you're lending 40 or $50,000 out, you know, you, you like to get something off that. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then so it also yeah. it also depends on what fees are included as well, right? Are lawyer fees involved? Is there brokerage fees included? That kind of stuff too. What, what's yeah, included? There would be. Yeah. yeah, there's there's lawyer fees on all private mortgages, so that ranges fifteen hundred dollars is probably a, an average number for that, depending on how much work the lawyer has to do. There's almost always title insurance involved, which is a couple hundred dollars you got to pay. Uh, you have to get an appraisal, so you're probably into it for over two thousand dollars in fees. So, on a small mortgage, that can really drive up your total cost of borrowing. Mm -hmm. You'd pay that whether it was a fifty thousand dollar mortgage or a two hundred fifty thousand dollar mortgage. You're still paying those same fees. It just becomes a bigger chunk of the chunk of the amount. So, one thing I didn't mention on um, self-directed mortgages, you can also tag team up with other investors. So. If you're at Olympia and you have an account there for 50,000 and somebody else has 50 and another guy has 100, you can combine into one mortgage for 200,000 instead of all daisy chaining, having a second and a third and a fourth, which right. you know, it reduces the risk if everybody is in there on a second mortgage. And it's a little cheaper, you know, there's only one, 
one mortgage to do with a lawyer and everything else. And all the fees that are included with it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's one option for people that if they think they don't have enough money to get into mortgages, they can always go in and, and team up with somebody else too. So broker can, there's, there's a fine line on the rules about doing multiple people on a single mortgage for brokers. So, but, uh, but it's pretty amazing that, uh, you know, a lot of people yeah. are just throwing it into the market and getting very Negative small returns. returns. And then they had no idea that there's this, this whole thing out there. That's, that's a really safe, low risk investment where you can get anywhere from 12 to 15% returns yearly. Yeah. Steady. And you know, if you, you put it in there at 10%. If you, if you can average 10% return a year, you know, in seven years, a rule of 72 in 7.2 years, your money doubles, right? That's crazy. So, yeah. Whereas in the stock market, in seven years, you could be worth 50% of what you paid for it. And I, I don't like to be negative about that. I mean, there's triple. just as much opportunity as well, right? But yeah. You know, if you're investing, I mean, there's nothing wrong with doubling your money every 7.2 years. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, do the math yeah. yourself. And, and you have control, right? So you you decide who you're going to lend to, what property you're going to lend to, what your terms are. Now, you know, I, I still got some mutual funds and stuff like that, but I have no control over what the president of Coca-Cola does with his company to might drive the price of his stock down. I got, you know, things like that. So you you really have no control in the stock market. You can buy some secure stocks and that, and you probably make some good returns over the long run. But if your long run is a shorter time frame, you know, maybe it's only five years and you're, you know, you're getting closer to retirement and you, you don't, you can't take that big 30 or 40% hit on your RSP if the stock market goes sideways. So. For sure. So what you're saying is that, you know, maybe when you're young, it's okay to take those big high risks, but if you're getting towards, you know, closer to retirement age, you, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's everybody's own decision, right? Life is full yeah. of decisions. But you know, I, I got quite a few clients who are at that age that accumulated money over time and however they've done it, you know, socked it away in a bank account, sold a business, whatever they've done over time. And that's what they live off is they make the money off their, off their mortgages, whether it's, pro, whether it's, you know, just cash or, if it's uh, through RSPs, um, a lot more people are liking to use their TFSAs because that money is accessible without tax, right? So right. there's a couple, of, a couple of strategies of combining your TFSA and your RRSP where you can um, load up the TFSA side of the interest coming back. So you can, if you loan it out at 10% to somebody, you can put way more money into your TFSA than your RRSP and that way you get more tax-free money available. Oh. So, yeah, you know, talk to your broker. He can tell you how to do that. That's some pretty cool stuff. We're going to have to talk yeah. about that again uh, another time. But, uh, Sean, I want to I thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing all this super valuable information. Um, if anyone is interested in reaching out to you, what's the best way? Well, they see my name on the screen there, hopefully. So yeah. Google my name, and if you want to put mortgage broker behind it, you'll get to my my uh, website is seanimpy.com, so that's pretty simple. So that'll have all my contact information. So if you want to call me directly and you're listening to this and you just can't wait to get started, 780-887-9513, 780-887-9513. Uh, we can touch base and it's always free to talk real estate. So.
Great. Well, thanks again, Sean. Okay. Thanks, Wayne.